Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Susan Reimer a recently retired nationally syndicated columnist for the Baltimore Sun. Susan started her career in Pittsburgh writing for a wire service and then came to Baltimore to write sports before becoming a well-known columnist. She shared with us the ups and downs of her stellar journalistic career. You plowed a lot of new ground for, for women early in your journalistic career. Well, every... Newsroom didn't want women, and then everybody wanted their one woman. So it was a long time before I had any uh, companions, women companions in the newsroom. And you really had to do um, uh, everything the boys did and, and do it a little bit better. My first assignment for the Associated Press was um, covering the federal indictment of Tony Boyle, the United Mine Workers Mine president, workers, right. who was indicted for um, slaughtering his rival and uh, wife and daughter. Um, that's stepping into it pretty fast. It was also a period of time when Pittsburgh was a city of champions. Uh, Pirates with Willie Stargell and Pitt with Dan Marino and uh, the Steelers were winning Super Bowls. Um, the only losers at the time, and it was quickly corrected, were the Penguins. Um, <laughs> There was such an appetite for sports stories out of the Pittsburgh Bureau for our member newspapers that we were a small bureau, but we all had to pitch in. So I had my little collection of sports stories, um, just a handful, really. I never covered any games. I never did game stories. I was just doing features and sidebars and things. So when I did what we all did back then, which was quit and travel around the country in the back of a van for six months, I knew I had to get a job. And so I pitched myself as a woman sports writer. And to be frank, I got a job offer everywhere I went. Um, I chose the Baltimore Sun because they asked me to cover high schools, and I felt like that was all I could handle. (laughs) Um, But before I – that was in February of 79 – by the fall, I was covering World Series. By the winter, I was covering the Super Bowl um, uh, as a feature writer and a sidebar person. It was wonderful. There was such freedom in sports writing, so many good stories, so much drama, and so few rules Yeah, that you really could— Now everything's controlled. Yes. Everything's processed. You could really develop as a writer in sports because nobody was paying attention. Now, you you had some early contacts with Earl Weaver, if I remember correctly, the yes. manager of the Baltimore Orioles, who was uh, outspoken, to say, <laughs> say the least. He and, was a nasty little tyrant. 
and certainly not uh, uh, very open to having women around and women in the locker room especially. Well, that was um, back when Melissa Ludke and Sports Illustrated sued the New York Yankees for access to the locker room. And the federal district court, I guess, in New York said, look, you have to provide equal access for men and women reporters. Hand out bathrobes, um, close it to everybody, whatever, but it has to be equal. Well, the Sun sent me to the Orioles locker room to essentially create a scene and then write about it, right. which I think is probably not good journalism. <laughs> I got to the door and Earl Weaver said, um, do you have a note from your father? <laughs> and so I just muscled past him and, and reported on the scene in the locker room with the, the towels and the bathrobes and everything there. Um, Time passes, time passes, and I'm um, – the Orioles were winning then, and they were a really exciting team. And we were all – all the reporters were on the field during batting practice. And it was a time when Sports Illustrated was there, uh, Sporting News, New York Times, Washington Post, Washington Star, Baltimore Sun, Baltimore News American, Baltimore Evening Sun. There was a crowd of reporters around Weaver waiting for a few pregame notes. I was hanging back. I was just subbing for somebody that day. I didn't – I just – didn't want to be right. in the mix. But he singled me out and said, asked me if I got horny when I went in the locker room. Oh, no. <laughs> and I said. And this was what? About 1980? 80. It was the summer of 1979. I thought. Yeah. And um, which is ancient history. And these old war stories bore but people n- today. No, no, but, no. Keep going. Um, so I said, I, I didn't answer. I just said. I got a question for you, Earl. And he said, yeah, what? And I said, what time is infield over? I have to speak to Palmer. <laughs> and But I went home and pulled the covers over my head for three days and um, didn't answer the phone. Um, I have to say sports writing was a gut check for women back in those days, every single day. Well, it still is it, it, to, to a different degree. But but you, you, you see the Aaron Andrews situation. Yes. You, oh, my God. You, yes. you, you just hear of – of women constantly fighting the battle. Well, and it's a different battle this these days. It's a battle to be pretty. You'll notice there aren't any homely sideline reporters, and there aren't any old sideline reporters. Leslie Visser was one of the first victims of the ageism um, among women, and yet some of the men are as homely as sin. And I, that's a, oh, an entirely different battle, is to be um, on camera um, and to be accepted on camera based on your looks. Going back, uh, and, and we'll move forward, but, but I was interested in, in reading uh, your, your sign-off column. Uh, one of your editors suggested that you carry a firearm. Yeah, that's when I was at the AP. <laughs> we, um, the AP office was located in the middle of strip clubs and um, porno shops. Yeah. It was Pittsburgh, right there. Right. And every night we had to go to one of these porno shops to pick up copies of the Post-Gazette and bring it back to the office to um, rewrite whatever news they had sure. in their early edition. Um, well, I had a very adamant editor at the time. And when I would stand on this corner waiting to cross, men would often pull up and ask if I was available. And he was appalled at this. I don't know how available I looked. I mean, I was just, <laughs> I, you know. But he suggest, He said to me, um, 
I'll send you somewhere you could be raped, but I won't send you anywhere you can be killed. And I want you to carry a gun. And I said, okay, raped, killed. Do I have a say in this? (laughs) Do I have a choice? Can I, like, pick one? Yeah. And um, he didn't ask the guys to buy a gun, so I didn't buy a gun either. And... You've really battled that kind of sexism, though, uh, throughout your career at various levels, have you not? <clears throat> yes, but I've also had some great champions. Um, I've had great editors who were willing to send me anywhere and um, willing to trust me when there wasn't a track record for women sports writers and there wasn't a track record particularly for women um, writing columns on national affairs. And yet Andy Green, my editorial editor, um, at the Sun, was so thoroughly supportive and in my corner, and championed me um, during the Ray Rice um, controversy in Baltimore. I had two page one columns that was unprecedented, above the fold, and it was because Andy went to bat for me. Uh, Ed Brandt, who was my sports editor, sent me anywhere. I covered the America's Cup of Yachting with Ted Turner at the helm twice and spent six weeks in Newport, Rhode Island. Who gets to do that these days? Yeah. Um, so I have, and my editor, Marty Kaiser, who has become such a star and, and such a champion in, in the newspaper business, he was my editor when I was on the sports copy desk. And I wrote an essay for The Sun magazine and a couple of more for the perspective section of the paper. And they were all about my family life. And he went to the editor and said, I think we found our family life columnist. I didn't even know what that was. But he said, do you think you can do this? And that was the transition, that from, was the transition. From, from sports. I was going to ask, did you just get tired of sports or, or did you just have a better offer to write about something that was more meaningful to I you? I got tired of staying up all night with two young kids because I was working the sports copy desk. I was there putting the paper to bed. Oh, yeah. And I was dead on my feet and I did it for four years. I was doing it for a summer just as a uh, – a way of cooperating with this. We needed help. Uh, I just was going to pitch in for a second. I ended up staying four years. And because I, this was back in the day when they actually paid you to write for <laughs> other sections of the newspaper. They paid me $250 for a magazine article on um, called Members of the Wedding. Uh, my children's view of my husband and I were renewing our vows. And I wrote one for the um, perspective section called Pity Poor Joe. It's his first baseball season, and his mother's a sports writer. And they paid me 50 bucks for that. And I thought, well, okay, my daughter's got to go to ballet camp. If I do a few more of these, I might actually be able to pay for it. (laughs) I had no ambition to be a family life columnist. Like I said, I didn't even know what it was. Well, back when you were working nights and, and your your husband is, is at that time was a sports writer and, and traveling, uh, that had to be tough. It was. and um, But I made the decision that I would come in off the road when the kids were born. Um, as a matter of fact, Joe was one month old. I was on maternity leave when the Colts pulled up the Mayflower moving van and left Baltimore. And Gary had to leave the house to go cover it. Um, my husband, Gary Mahokas, was um, one of the first sports writers hired by USA you Today when it began. Right. And um, so he did the traveling, I did the kids, and it all worked out fine. But it gave you a lot of column material. Yeah, that my ch- kids hated. They <laughs> talk absolutely about hated. Talk about that. I mean, the, the, that that had to be an awkward situation when thinking that your mom is not just your mom, but an in-house observer. Yeah, and 
I remember Joe calling me one time from a payphone in middle school. This was before they had cell phones. And he said, Mom, did you write about condoms today? And I said, well, I, I might, have men- mentioned, <laughs> sure. might have mentioned condoms. I wrote a lot at that time about uh, comprehensive sex education for right. kids. Uh, I said, but I didn't mention you. I mean, I didn't say anything about you and condoms. And he said, thanks a lot, and slammed down the phone. A teacher had mentioned it to him, and he was humiliated. So Joe has been my sharpest critic. Jesse worried more about what I wore. I would come down in the morning, and she would say in her sweet way, oh, you're wearing that? <laughs> um, and even today, as a young adult, I also wrote about the relationship between parents and their young adult children. And... Jesse's coworkers and employer would notice her and call it to her attention, and she was quite charmed by the attention. Joe never was. Now, uh, to bring our listeners up to date, your your son's in the military, graduated from uh, Naval the Academy. Naval Academy. He left the Marine Corps um, um, a little over a year ago and returned to uh, Maryland with his wife and now three sons. He was a, a Cobra helicopter pilot and did three tours in Afghanistan. I did not write about Joe's time there. I did not write about him there. But it certainly colored my um, writing about the war and about politics and about Bo Bergdahl and and so many of the incidents related to the war, um, the American Taliban, um, right. all of those um, things had a resonance with me that uh, my readers understood because they knew Joe was in the military vaguely. But it was uh, – the column often was a way for me to process my own life. And this helped me process that segment of my own life, which was probably the most difficult of oh, all my years. Would have would have to be. And your daughter now is uh, – She's a graduated uh, – graduated From of, Penn State, right? Yeah, Penn State's Smeal School of Business, and she works as a marketing director for a wealth management firm in Baltimore. So for the first time in a decade... both children close by then. Yes. That's unusual in this day and age. Tom, there's a new finish line for parenting, and that is they get to college and get out in four years, they get a job with health care, and they're in a committed relationship before they have children. There you go. That's that's (laughs) the new bottom line for parenting, and, and they don't end up in jail for anything. Uh, Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else is great. Perfect relationship. (laughs) We're talking to Susan Reimer. She is this year's L.J. Horton Alumni Award winner from the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism in 1973, alumna of Ohio University and also a former columnist for the Baltimore Sun. We'll be back after this short message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Ohio University's online applied communication program offered by the renowned Scripps College of Communication is designed for associate degree graduates who want to further their education and advance their careers. It's been ranked first in the best online bachelor's in communication and public relations students before profits award 2015-2016 by nonprofit colleges online. In the program, you will study across multiple communication disciplines to gain understanding of how they work together and graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communication in Applied Communication from the Scripps College. 
one of the premier colleges of its kind in the nation, the Scripps College of Communication, has been designated as a center of excellence by the state of Ohio. It is considered one of Ohio University's most distinguished programs by the Guide to 101 of Best Values in American Colleges and Universities. Read more about it at ohio.edu slash applied communication. When did your column then start going national? When we were purchased by the Los Angeles Times in the 1980s, um, the Baltimore Sun was a cash cow. We, we just were hemorrhaging money. There was just money everywhere. And the Los Angeles Times bought us. And they had the L.A. Times, Washington Post news service. News service. Right. And I was a regular columnist on that. That was a fun period. I would get letters from New Zealand, from Australia, from Israel. Wow. And from all over the country. And I would show up in newspapers that meant a lot to me, um, the Louisville Courier-Journal, sure. um, the Lexington Herald, all uh, the Chicago Tribune, all the big times that L.A. Times would run me. And that was heady. That was a very heady experience. Did, knowing that you were writing then for a national audience, did, did it change your writing style or your perspective or your Not topics? my writing style, but it changed my topics. I had to be careful to write about one national issue a week and one local. And you had two columns a week. I had two week. columns a week. And I had to make sure that there was one that would be acceptable um, outside of Baltimore. But as a columnist for the Baltimore Sun, I still owed it to my readers to write about local issues. So it was kind of tricky sometimes. And, and you still wrote about family through, throughout yes, yes, all of that. It, and I, I assume that it was reassuring to some degree that, that what you were writing was resonating whether you lived in the state of Washington or, or Florida or, or Baltimore. I used to say um, we, women are um, living the same life. I'm just the one writing about it. And I would often hear, and it was probably the most gratifying um, response I ever got, um, emails and letters from women saying, you said what I was thinking. I just couldn't find the words. And that meant a lot to me because I think we, there's so, there are universal concerns for women. And, and I felt like I was giving voice to them. <laughs> it, 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 I have a, a personal story. My wife was an avid uh, reader of, of of your column, and and she would often say, just as you did, that that um, you said what she was feeling, and, and you articulated. But sometimes she would just bring the newspaper, put it in front of me, put it across the table, go read this. <laughs> I had so many women write the same thing to me, or men saying, "My wife made me read you this morning." <clears throat> and this is what I think. I said, yeah, I, I really like Susan, and we've been friends for a long time. <laughs> do, do I have to? Can right I have my coffee <laughs> that's, that's right. So when you started then going into politics it, and, and, and uh, uh, more political instead of family issues, was that a leap for you? Or was that just a natural progression? It was an intellectual challenge, that's for sure, but it was required by the fact that when the newspapers started shrinking, the first thing they eliminated was the features section, and that's where my column had been for all those years. So there was no place for me to go but op-ed. And it was fine 
by me because I felt like I was playing with the big boys now. And well, and you'd always had things to say. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. channeled them a little, <laughs> little differently. Um, and this was also the time when um, the Baltimore Sun, as I'm sure was the case in other newspapers, gave up the um, columnists that we had run from the New York Times, you know, George Will, um, right. Christoph, all, all the ones that we had paid so much money for and didn't have the money for anymore. So I had to fill um, some pretty big shoes because our readership in Baltimore is fairly sophisticated, and they liked what they got on the op-ed page for 40 years, and they they wanted the same quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had to find some people that we hired for nothing or no money and um, employ them to write, usually professors. Uh, Bob Ehrlich, the former governor of Maryland, came on board as a columnist. Um, we so we had to make up a whole new op-ed page, and and so did you, and you did that twice a week. Still, mm-hmm. so so did you run out of ideas or or it, people it, ask that a lot. I first of all, I have um, a terrible fear of failure, and it would be terrifying for me to go to an editor and say, oh, I just don't have an idea today. <laughs> I can't imagine that. No. Um, <laughs> that never happened. And also, I I felt like people were dropping ideas on the sidewalk in front of me. I felt if you do this long enough, you see a column. You absolutely see it. And you know when a topic is in your wheelhouse. And you give it a little time to percolate. You do as much research as you can manage in a short amount of time. Um, and then you, you, you have at it. I, uh, I owe so much to OU. I can't even begin to tell you. My first English class, the professor said to me, I think it was Mark Rollins, who's a uh, emeritus here or something. Right. Um, you seem like a very bright girl, but you can't write your way out of a paper bag. Undaunted, <laughs> I decided to enroll in the School of Journalism. Yeah. And the inverted pyramid in my first news writing class was a revelation. It taught me what to do with all the information I had. And it was like learning to build a birdhouse. I've been building birdhouses ever since. They're just a little more elaborate. So, but you go from writing about your family and writing about issues that people identify with to to now being a a political observer. I don't know how to phrase this other than to say what what was your voice? Did it change? I mean, uh, you you were you were the mom in a, in in a compa- contact sport, uh, but now you're you're a political observer. Were I was you a crazy, a, um, crazy, um, crazy woman watching cra- politics. Crazy, <laughs> cra- crazy liberal feminist. Okay, you know, I never, you know, I there were a few times when I. Um, wrote something counterintuitive, something that you would not have expected from me. Um, but most of the time, the outrage was easy to tap, Tom. Yeah, sure. These last few years, it's been, and especially in the election cycles, with the outrageous things that are being said about women uh, and done to women, is um, it, it was easy pickings. So now that you're not writing, at least uh, to the audience that you had before, I can't imagine you're not writing, but you're not writing for that audience. And you're observing the 2016 primary season. 
you, you have to just be sitting on your hands, so to speak, well, aren't you? To a certain extent, yes, but it's become so outrageous that I'm wondering how many times I could say, oh, my God, do you believe this in a column? <laughs> Can you believe what just happened? I'm just uh, – I, I – and I – have a significant following on Facebook. Everybody's invited to follow me on Facebook, and some, and also a following on Twitter. And I continue to post comments and articles and things that I see that are very much the Susan Reimer columnist. I have not begun doing original writing again for um, uh, Facebook. I think that's what I'd like to do down the road: is post some original essays in addition to the stuff I'm finding that other people say better than me. Um, but I haven't begun that yet. And and once a writer, it's it, you always look at things with a writer's eye, do you not? I mean, that doesn't retire. Interesting that you should say that. The assumption um, among my peers and contemporaries and friends has been that I would go on writing. Um, and my response has always been, would you ask a ditch digger how many ditches he planned to dig in retirement? I had to do a speech for the um, award presentation um, tonight, and I had to do a freelance assignment. And I recall all too vividly what hard work writing is. I had to do it. There was a gun to my head. They said, they say writing a column is like being married to a nymphomaniac. You do it, and then you have to do it again. (laughs) And there's never a time when you don't have to do it. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I remember just how hard it is to do, and it's not like I don't miss it, but I, it's a relief n- not to have to make that much effort every day of the week. You, you had a, um, an amazing career. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, 14 years as a sports writer, a, a nationally known columnist, uh, writing about family issues, writing writing about politics, but you also had the breadth. You were writing about food. Yes. You you were writing about gardening. Yes. You, I mean, you, you, you pick a topic. You've almost been there. Well, it isn't that the nature of journalists? Tom? It, it we're is. just so curious about everything, and we think everybody ought to answer our questions, <laughs> and so we we just follow our curiosity wherever it laid. Now the um, newspaper business became such that. We all had to do everything, and we all had to pitch in for the holes. And so I did some food writing, which I thoroughly loved, because chefs and cookbook authors are so available, and they'll talk to you forever, and they'll demonstrate anything. And they and have such passion, yeah, most of them. Yeah, and they'll feed you. <laughs> um, I had my own interest in gardening, so I followed that, and I was a garden blogger for The Sun um, in the early days of blogging. And um, tremendous curiosity about that, too. Um, I one of my favorite stories was I went out in the woods with somebody and tapped maple trees and made maple syrup. Hello, who gets to do that and get paid for it? It it was an enormous range of topics that I got to investigate during my time, and I loved it all. And, and it, each form of writing was a little bit different. Yes, and you honed a different skill within yourself. That that had to be expanding. It was, and um, it was. Um, Challenging, but never impossible for me. The only area where I had trouble was they wanted a lot of content about home design, and I never felt comfortable there. Um, I just didn't have the vocabulary. And that's what all of these different disciplines require is a different vocabulary, and I didn't have it. 
The other good thing about OU, when I was here, we were allowed to take only a minimum number of journalism courses, and we had to take courses in every other discipline because we never knew what we'd be writing about. Still do. Yeah, and that's very important. We've been talking to a journalistic pioneer, Susan Reimer, a recently retired nationally syndicated columnist from the Baltimore Sun. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Coming up next time is a conversation with the man behind the music, Ken Ehrlich, who has produced 36 straight Grammy Award shows. For more information about Spectrum, go to woub.org.